Happy mid-season, baseball fans, and thanks for downloading the sports movie podcast known as Scoring at the Quaid. Okay, Scoring at the Movies, but this has turned into the Summer of Quaid. Every other Thursday, we talk about motion pictures with balls, gloves, skates, steering wheels, running shoes, nets, and other athletic equipment in them. And I'll warn you about this for the 108th time, we spoil. I'm the baseball freak and softball pitcher who can't throw even close to 98 miles per hour, Maybe not even 58 miles per hour. Ryan Ellis. Number 63, in fact. Ryan Ellis. And here's the sun-dappled patron saint of impossible dreams. The man who likes to dig in when he's on the rubber, even when it's just a big old puddle of mud. St. Rita. Christy Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. I made sure to scatter a row of was it rose petals out front of the recording studio before we got started mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Because if there was ever a lost cause or impossible cause, it might be this podcast. So it needs all the <laughs> blessings it can get. I thought for sure you would have gone with quading at the movies. I'm not good at naming things. <laughs> <laughs> I've proven that many times over the years. Yeah, this is a third and four or something? Third of four. Third it was four. the Express, then it was Hustle. So he was the coach in the Express, football coach. Then Hustle was the Sandler movie, which we recommend. Very good film. Right. It wasn't in that. But then Breaking Away, two weeks ago, the cycling movie. And now here playing a baseball player and also a baseball coach in the same movie. It's a two-pack. Before we do get into this movie, I'm glad you mentioned Hustle. You revived, I don't think it was for the Hustle podcast, but you recently revived one of the few segments we periodically do, Runs, Hits, and Errors, recently. Mm -hmm. I'm going to propose a new, probably seldom used segment called The Scouting Report. Okay. And at this point, just imagine that I'm dropping in an audio clip from Moneyball in the Scouts room. I like that guy's look. He's got a good look. Ah, but his girlfriend's a six. Ah, just give him 400 at-bats. He'll get better. Like all that's happening right now, okay? In this scouting report, we got an email to the Scoring at the Movies email address about Hustle from somebody named Tom. Oh, this is legitimate. Okay. So this is breaking news in the podcast. I didn't know this. I'm springing this on you in the moment. I actually only read it this morning, so I couldn't have forewarned you much anyway. Tom, who's apparently an editor on Hustle reached out because he heard the episode. He was kind enough to reach out and give us some behind-the-scenes tidbits based on some of the things we talked about. I'm very appreciative of that. And I did look up Tom. I'm not going to say his last name because I don't want to... It's easy enough to find out, I suppose, if you really want to, but I'm not going to bother with the last name. I did look him up on IMDb, and I have to say I'm pretty jealous of this guy because he looks like he's worked on a lot of Sandler productions in Mm. addition to some other cool stuff over the years. He's getting paid. I'm sure he's met Sandler. He's met with a bunch of guys. But he worked on Zohan, too, and Zohan is low-key one of my favorite silly Adam Sandler movies. Okay. Anyway, that tangent aside, there are a few things we talked about with Hustle. One of them was Ben Foster's head mm-hmm. and how it didn't look quite right what tom told me was that as you might expect given that this was filmed in late 2020 that between covid and the nba season they filmed some early stuff in late 2020 that was he said mostly small conversational scenes 
and Ben had made the choice to shave his head for the character. Uh-huh. He was going with this. Yeah. yeah. So he shaved it then, and then they broke for nine months. And when they came back, he was working on another production at that point. He had grown out his hair and wouldn't shave it off. So they even put a bald cap on. And apparently what we see in the movie is actually like a VFX improved version of his head. Really? (laughs) Which just makes me believe that it must have been quite the orb-like, like like one of those aliens from the original... Coneheads? Not Coneheads. I'm really dating myself here, but the original... Mars Attacks? Yeah, that's a good one. I was going to say the original Star Trek series, the pilot episode with the aliens that were like the the throbbing devils, but the Mars Attacks one is at least 90s. It's not the 60s. It was the best visual effect we could afford. (laughs) Kind of. So... Oh, that's fun to know. So we weren't totally out to lunch thinking his head looked a little bit weird when it was shaved because okay. I guess there was a lot of bald cap action there. And the other thing we talked about was the funeral scene where Adam Sandler's character was wearing the powder blue tux. I mused that maybe that was a callback to like the baby blue tux that he wore in Waterboy, which apparently was not the case. Early in the movie, apparently Robert Duvall's character had exactly the same suit. This was a callback to that. And evidently there was a cut scene that would have existed in the movie where Robert Duvall and Adam Sandler's character go out for a, what's that Philadelphia thing called? A shaved ice or something? Effectively a snow cone. Okay. Robert Duvall, for the last 40 years or something, he always got his suits at the same place. And so this Uh, was going to be like a payoff to the whole suit thing. So it was a little bit harder to pick out because that scene got cut, but it was a straight up callback to that. All right, there you go. So figured out the head thing, figured out the baby blue tux thing at the funeral, I like this little behind-the-scenes info that we got there. It's like a little scouting report from behind the scenes. And thank you, Tom, for listening to us in the first place and then correcting some things. And I guess he listened to us at all, so that's a plus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's always a plus. All right, excellent. And that was a couple weeks ago. But yes, we are in the summer of Quaid. That was the one movie we've covered lately that he wasn't in. This is The Rookie, also known as Desafio do Destino. That's how it was known in Brazil. (laughs) Brasilia. That was released 20 years ago by Disney on March 29th, 2002. It more than tripled its budget domestically and made nearly four times its budget worldwide. All right, well, I've seen this movie, I think, once before. I looked at my old notes. I gave it three out of four stars. Really? I still think it's at least solid. What about a Christopher DiGregorio? I thought it had solid elements to it, but to me, this didn't feel like a coherent movie. It felt like they were trying to shoehorn a couple of different tropes together and make it a movie. Mm. The first half of the movie felt like a hardball style coach teaches the team and in turn learns a lesson himself movie. Bad News Bears also. Bad News Bears, exactly. Mighty Ducks, we could keep going. Lots of them. And then the second half of the movie was the underdog story, the Rudy story, or that Mark Wahlberg movie with the kicker. Invincible. Invincible. There's a lot of those too. And it felt like two distinct stories. And honestly, the first one, the one about the team... I really didn't care at all about it. Me neither, yeah. Mostly because we don't get to learn anything about the kids. I learned like three names of the nine on the team, just barely. And then their season's done and we never see them again except a few shots of them in the stands. And then we're on to the other movie that I thought was way more interesting, way better portrayed, which was the underdog story, the familial, is it something that his wife can get behind because of all the stress that will put on a family where you've got three kids, you've got a house, you've got a Some of the bills. same things in Field of Dreams. Exactly, Can yes. he afford to be chasing his dream? That is a story and a trope that I can get behind when it's done well, and I thought it largely was done well here. The first half of the movie was a bit of a slog for me to get through. Not that it was bad either, because I like Quaid, and some of the young actors I thought did a fine job with what they were doing. We're just not told a lot about that arc, and so it just felt flat to me. 
Yeah, there may be too much of that, too, because the movie's a little bit over two hours, right. and we don't need to see as much of their season. It's also like they're a sleeping giant. When they're motivated, they can be anybody. Yeah. But they were terrible before that. It's barely explained how bad they were before. Like he says, you won zero games. You won one game. You won one game, and you won one game or something. And then you won 16 games, and we need to win 17. But aside from a few super half-assed practices, we never see any reason why they suddenly go from this sad sack team to a juggernaut overnight. Okay, your field has grass on it, and you've shagged a few fly balls, and you've watched your coach rifle in some fastballs. That's supposed to be the big reason. He's challenging them, making them better hitters. Would that work? I don't know. But that is my nutshell for this podcast, this episode. So the rookie in a nutshell. Middle-aged Texan can throw nearly 100 miles an hour. Okay, back then, the late 90s, when this movie is set, because this is a real story, it's pretty impressive. These days, yawn. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything anymore. Everybody throws 98 miles an hour anymore. I don't think I ever saw this movie prior to doing it for the podcast. But when we were introduced to Dennis Quaid's character early, and the kids are asking him, how hard did you throw back when you were trying to make it to the bigs? And he's going, 86, something like that. Damn, dude, you were a slop ball pitcher, right? And then we see him later on throwing 96 first. And that was a silly scene, too. But anyway, we see he throws 96 now. And in my head, I'm trying to go back to the 90s. That really stands out back That's then. That's to know. Absolutely would have. He has an absolutely correct line, I think, in this movie later when he's talking to his wife. And he says, I threw 98 today. There's like five people in the bigs that do that. And I think that's true. That might have been true then, yeah. Yeah, but like you said, these days, if you're not throwing 98, especially out of the pen, you can be a mm. starter with a more varied repertoire and get away with it, certainly. But if you're coming out of the pen and you're not throwing 98, you seem slow now. You're the outlier. Yeah. Well, let me give you some stats on Jim Morris. Of course, he is who Dennis Quaid is playing, or Jimmy Morris. I'll probably call him Jim in this, but Jimmy, you hear both names. Did you struggle not to think of him as Jim Morrison, by the way? Every time (laughs) I was thinking about this movie, Jim Morris, Jim Morrison, Jim Morris, Jim Morrison. People are strange, dude. People are strange. (laughs) Quaid, by the way, is a Texan, and he's playing a Texan. I think he was actually born there. The character was born there. Yes, he was. But then the movie portrays, I think it's real, that they moved around a lot when he was a kid because his dad, Jim Sr., Brian Cox's character, was in the military, the Navy. In and they, the Navy. <laughs> and they moved around a lot. But he comes back to Texas for a while to live. And then, of course, a lot of the story takes place. Well, he's actually in Florida for a little while, too. He's in Hollywood, Florida as a kid. Well, he's never in Florida pitching, in the movie at least. But he's, he's playing for a Florida team for about a, not quite a year. He was in Orlando. The double-A team was Orlando. Oh, true. And also the Durham Bulls. Durham Bulls, yeah. We should really should have covered Bull Durham. I watched that again just for my own edification recently. I love Bull Durham so much. Okay, so Jim Morris and Dennis Quaid, for that matter. Quaid is several inches shorter than Morris. Morris yeah. is 6'3". Quaid's about six big feet, guy. so close enough. It's not that big a difference. And I think Quaid, by the way, maybe it's camera techniques and great editing, but I think that Quaid looks believable enough as Morris. So yeah. Morris did get the big leagues at 38 years old. If you look on Baseball Reference, he looks like David Wells, interestingly. I, I thought that too, yeah. Not quite as truckery a mustache as david wells had they listed him as 6'3 and 215 so definitely bigger than quaid yeah morris was a mop-up man into may 2000 so he came up in 99 like the show as september call-up and the movie it's just the two guys brooks isn't a real person apparently steve cox is the name of the guy that morris came up with and reading that online made me think so really the real tampa team actually just called up two people when they were brand new to the league why don't you call up a whole bunch of people? Because you can call up, I don't know how many you can, but it's certainly more than two. Was it supposed to be a September call-up this was, situation? Yeah, yeah. yeah this is oh, mid-September. Okay. He didn't debut till mid-September. And it was in Texas. It was a night game. They lost 6-1, to one, and he got a strikeout of Royce Clayton. 
he threw four pitches rather than the three you see in the movie, but otherwise it's very accurate. That part is all accurate. But Morris did pitch for that, not even a full year. The Rays were 5-16 and 16 in games he pitched, so truly a mop-up guy. He was briefly with the White Sox, but never pitched for them. Then the Devil Rays for those, not even two years, but two different seasons. He was signed by the Dodgers, but never played for them. And he was drafted by the Brewers. They talk about that, I think, in the movie itself, yeah. right? And then another factoid here is that 1999 was Tampa's second year, so they were as new as he was to this almost as a franchise. They did a McGriff and Boggs and Canseco, but the ends of their careers. We saw those jerseys, Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was fun, and it did remind me what a quirky roster this era of Tampa team had. you think those guys, even at the end of their careers or towards the end of their careers, would have been a little bit better than they were, but they were terrible for 10 straight years. And the first year they became just the Rays, that was the year they went to the World Series against the Phillies in 2008. That's a fun little factoid, I did. Even in 07, it wasn't like their record was, oh, you know, 75 and 80, whatever, or 81 and 81. No, they were bad, 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 and then World Series caliber team. Lost, but got there. It is funny, especially given the, I think, rightful reputation that Tampa Bay has now as far as being smart, drafting, developing teams, identifying players underperforming elsewhere and bringing them in, stuff like that. For a long time... They drafted very high up year over year and didn't really get a lot out of it until we started to see players like Carl Crawford, Mm -hmm. David Price, of course, Evan Longoria, those caliber of players show up on the scene and then they've never looked back. They've basically been contenders for a decade or so ever since. This would be the 15th season, I guess, then. And most of those years, they were at least in the hunt. Yes, at least competitive. And more often than not, they're in the playoff picture. Even the Red Sox have had a few terrible years in that span, despite all their World Series wins in that time frame. So that's the real-life story about Jim Morris. Now, the real-life story about this movie, the critics liked the film quite a bit. It got 84% of critics on its side on Rotten Tomatoes, 84, 7.2 out of 10 is the average. There were 154 reviews on the site and 70% of audiences. It was 37th that year at the 2002 U.S. box office. Triple X was 15. <laughs> sports, I guess, really, right? You know, he does... Extreme uh, sports. Extreme sports. I think he snowboards in that, possibly. I live for this bleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Mike was 50th. That's a basketball film. And Blue Crush, the surfing film, was 62nd. And this movie was nominated for one AFI list. I've talked about the AFI list plenty of times when they've come up. It's not going to be what you think. It's not the top 100 genres in the sports category, which had 50 nominees. It wasn't one of those. Top 100 cheers, which I guess in some ways makes more sense. The most inspiring movies of all time because never give up on dreams. Okay, the crux of this movie, though. This guy gives up on his dreams over and over. I can't do it. Oh, yeah. Jimmy, throw a ball in here. Or coach, throw the ball in here. Okay, catcher, fine. Zing! (laughs) I can't do it. You just literally did. Okay, tryout. 96, 98. Zing! I can't do this. I got a kid. I got three kids to deal with and a wife. We want you to play for the minor league team and maybe get called up. I guess so. Go to the minor leagues. I can't do this, Lori. Zing, zing, zing. <laughs> it's funny how Dennis Quaid is portrayed as such a sad sack. The one time it was inspirational, I thought, well, okay, the very last scene when he pitches in Texas, and that was set in Arlington. They shot it in 2001. Okay. I'm just going to pause you there for a second because you said something that I was thinking about when I watched the movie, where the movie, in my mind, should have ended. For me, it should have ended as soon as Jim Morris threw the first pitch from the mound in Texas in kind of like a Rocky versus Apollo in the sparring ring, pause, mid-pitch. Or Rocky three. The fun bout between them, not the actual fights. Age before beauty. Yeah, exactly. 
because the whole crux of the movie is living your dream, right? Or chasing your dream. And as soon as he throws a pitch in the big leagues, he, he achieves that. You cut it there. Like I said, you freeze frame, maybe mid delivery of the pitch and you fade to black and you bring it back up again at maybe the trophy case that they show at the end of the movie with his jersey and the picture of the team with him there. I really thought, incidentally, when they zoomed in on the picture of the team, because they've done this in other movies that we've seen, mm-hmm. that it would have been the real Jim Morris in the not, picture. It's but quaint. it's not. It's quaint. Mm-hmm. All right. I thought that's what you were doing when you are very slowly and deliberately zooming in. But anyway, to me, that would have been the ideal cut point. It also would have taken eight to ten minutes of runtime out of an already pretty long movie for what it is. Mm-hmm. The rest of it just felt like, okay, well, we've just achieved the whole goal of this movie. What's left? I can see the merits to that. I also do feel like it won me over in the end. The Brian Cox thing at the end. Here's a legendary actor who's been doing this for so long. Now it's Succession. The bad dad in that show. Stresses me out. The whole show does. I respect the hell of that show, but man, I really hate him so much. But you hate him in the good way. Yes, because he's great. They all are really good in that show, but I hate all of them. I really hate him because, of course, they represent real-life people. He's been in other sports movies, though, which we haven't covered yet. One of them is Matchpoint, the Woody Allen film. We probably won't cover that. But he is in For Love of the Game. And I read online, I think it's a similar thing where he gets a game ball, I think, from Costner. So maybe he's the manager or maybe he's Costner's dad. I haven't seen that movie in so long. I don't recall. We'll probably do it eventually because we've done so many Costner films. I didn't like that movie. But we got to cover as many Costner sports movies as we can. There's a few more we could do, and that's one of them. And we get Cox again in that film. I basically bought that whole thing at the end where he finally accepts his son, even though we've seen this in so many movies. He didn't believe in his son the whole time. You're talking about Brian Cox accepting Dennis Quaid, not Dennis Quaid accepting Angus, whatever his name is, right? Oh, the grandson. Well, he was good with his grandson. He was good with That was actually a nice touch because my dad's like that. He's different with all of us now that we're all middle-aged people ourselves, but he wasn't the greatest dad of all time. When I saw him with some of the grandchildren over the years, he was different with them. Mm. He's not the first person who's, especially men, who was different with a grandchild than they were with their own kids. That's true. And it seems like that's what it is with Brian Cox's character here, Jim Sr. He is pretty good and as loving as he can be and as caring and as emotional as he can be with Hunter than he never was with Jim. Jim is still calling him sir until he finally does say dad at the ballpark. It's almost like, dad, want to have a ball? Yeah. (laughs) Let me give you a ball. He doesn't call him dad. Jim Jr. doesn't until that moment at the very end in Arlington. There's nothing here that we haven't seen a thousand times before and you can tell basically from the first scene that brian cox's character shows up in what his arc is going to be in the movie where eventually he'll come around there'll be that kind of emotional payoff at the end of the movie with dennis quaid's character not impossible the two things one he could have died and two he could have been hard the whole time and then the mother said but i believe in you jimmy and these people believe in you your friends and your son, sir, does. And your wife does. It could have been that, too. It could have been. I just, but it's also Disney. I don't think in a Disney movie we're ever going to see those. So okay. I expected what happened. But when I saw that moment tacked on the end of the movie, and it didn't really pay off for me personally, okay. because I felt like the relationship between Jim and his dad and Jim and his wife and some of the stuff about growing up first, particularly the stuff about his post-draft injuries and young Jim and young Laurie experiencing that we don't really see any of it no we don't see any of it we see him as a middle-aged guy after seeing him as whatever a 12 year old or something yeah it's a harsh cut and the only thing we learn about what he went through in his previous attempts to get to the bigs is basically what we're told by Lori later when she explains why she's upset with him making this comeback attempt is because i had to live with it before i had to see you get hurt and give up on everybody and that was a good scene it made sense 
but I think it would have been more impactful if we got just a sense of what Jim was like when he was younger and hurt and maybe he was a bigger ass to everybody. And I think it also would have helped pay off what you said earlier about Dennis Quaid being such a sad sack character. Mm -hmm. It would make more sense to us that he was so joyless about his own relationship with the game. He's got a lot of joy and passion for his kids. I mean, like the school kids, but not so much for himself. And I think that would have made more sense too if we were given a little bit more backstory there. But for the father in particular, he was just such a caricature of a military dad. I don't give a hoot about your game, son. We're moving. Mm-hmm. And I get that that's the reality, fine. But then we pretty much jump cut from that forward a ton of time. I mean, like a brief scene with the dad and the grandson, which was a nice scene because we get to see what he's like with the grandchild. Mm-hmm. We get a brief scene with the mother where she's basically like, yeah, I divorced your dad. I don't want to go down your road. You should forgive him. And then we cut to the end of the movie. Well, that was bang, 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 and we're done kind of thing for what was meant to be an emotional payoff. Yeah, I the- frankly would have liked to see him give that ball to his son, Dennis Quaid, give it to Hunter. His biggest fan. Yeah. And you're right. That would have made some sense as well. Beth Grant does play the mother, by the way. And it's funny, too, because both Grant and Cox, who are around the same age, I would have thought Brian Cox would be a lot older than Beth Grant, but he's mm-hmm. not that much older. But neither of them is that much older than the grown-up Dennis Quaid. Is that right? Yeah, you forgive that because the early part of the movie, their scenes then, the most part of the movie they even have, is early on when they're with a 12-year-old or whatever age he's supposed to be. But yeah, Beth Grant, who's had a great diverse career herself, like Cox has. Cox has been in so many movies. Mm -hmm. But she was in Donnie Darko. It's the sparkle motion. I question your commitment to sparkle motion. (laughs) Love that scene so much. She's in Speed. She's the woman that gets killed when she tries to get off the bus when it's racing along the highway. And then, of course, she's the mother in No Country for Old Men. She's Norma Jean's mother in that film. The parents had to be in the movie, and you couldn't not have them come back, I guess. I don't know if it's based on reality. It might have been just juiced for the movie in the sense that Jim Morris' parents were either more supportive or not like this. Right. But it's not like Jim Sr. is awful to him. It's more that he just doesn't really care about the baseball thing. And they move to a place where it's all about football. And by the way, where they do end up, because they go from Texas the very beginning, we see that sequence almost like a fable thing. It's sort of like that, what's that Coen Brothers movie? A Serious Man. Yes. Where we see the Dybbuk, some kind of Jewish fable thing. At the very beginning, you think, what's this got to do with the rest of the movie? And I think it's supposed to be a setup for what's believed is happening through the whole storyline. That's a more esoteric movie anyway. But here you've got these two nuns at the very beginning trying to find oil in Texas, and we don't see them again until the very ending. But we also do see that medal a few different times, the St. Rita medal. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to be some kind of talisman that goes with the whole story too. But anyway, they're in Texas in the very beginning. Then he's in Groton, Connecticut. Then it's Roanoke, Virginia. And then Hollywood, Florida. Not Hollywood, California, but Hollywood, Florida. And the last place to end up is Big Lake in West Texas. Now, where's West Texas in the history of movies that we've covered before? Maybe other ones. Possibly Glory Road was there. They were Texas, I believe. But Friday, Friday Night Lights. And say. Jay Hernandez is whack in this movie. And two years later after this one, he ends up playing the safety. Brian Chavez, I think is his name. One of my favorites that we've ever covered, Friday Night Lights. But both in West Texas. Oh, yeah. And Quaid himself is a Texan, so it does make sense, too. Can you imagine the conversation you would have if you were young Jimmy Morris and your dad comes home and says, I've been transferred again. We're moving to Hollywood. You're like, oh, yay, <laughs> Hollywood, Florida. All right. <laughs> That's got to be rough. The only kid I recognize from the school team, the primary pitcher kid with the fro, we've seen him in... Uh, Timo Cruz. 
Is that his name? In Coach Carter. In Coach Carter, yeah. But we've seen him in something else as well, at least one other movie. I didn't see. I looked up his resume. I didn't see anything else. Oh, just really? that. Maybe there's something else I overlooked it. He was the only kid I recognized. And it shows how little I remembered about any of the kids that weren't Whack. And Whack, I only remember because that name is Whack. Well, it's Joaquin Campos, according to the credits here. Oh, so no. Whack is short for Joaquin. Do they ever actually say Joaquin so that we would know so. that Whack is short form so, for no. that? <laughs> I don't think so either. I agree with you that they had to show the relationship with the parents, of course, because you have to set up Jim Morris's love of baseball. This guy's obsessed with baseball. Why is he not a baseball player? That's professional. Right. Even if he's just mediocre, why is he not? Oh, partly because his parents, whether intended to or not, and they didn't intend to, didn't give him the chance to be a professional baseball player. Yeah. When he grew up, he wasn't going to be a baseball player, well, realistically he, speaking. He got drafted, though. That's the thing, right? Okay, you're right, yeah. Which is true. part of the reason why I say I would have loved to have seen, even if it's like a brief clip show, montage kind of thing, show me what happened to him post-draft by the Brewers. Because up until that moment, when he's meeting the scout and he says, oh, I haven't seen you since you got drafted by the Brewers, I wasn't sure whether he really got drafted how far in the minors if at all he'd ever actually pitched because there's barely a comment about him chasing his dream but never making the majors and that's after we see exactly what you described with his upbringing with his father who was super don't dream son kind of attitude guy and the mother that was kind of supportive but also deferential to the father so there wasn't a lot of at-home support I was pretty surprised when we learned, okay, well, they're moving to Texas. Fine. Texas is a hot state, a lot of year to play baseball. Well, nobody here plays baseball. We Mm -hmm. don't even stock baseball equipment in the store. And granted, this is the 70s. When did the Rangers and the Astros come into being? Astros are in the 60s, I believe. The Rangers might have been the early 70s. The Rangers went from Washington, was it? I think it was Washington. Washington Senators were a team multiple times until they now are the Washington Nationals. Transplant from Montreal. (laughs) But I think it may have been the Senators went to Texas to be the Rangers. It may be the early 70s. I thought the Astros and Rangers both might have been early 70s. But even if the Astros were late 60s. But Dallas and Houston are so far from this. It might as well be a whole different state. I guess that's true. I also appreciate this was meant to be a pretty small town. Their school is so small that they only have nine players or the 10 players on the team. Mm -hmm. But you don't have a baseball glove or any baseball equipment in the store that stocks, I guess, clothing and sports equipment, like your general Mm -hmm. store in the town. All right, fair enough, I guess. One of the moments I did like with the kids, maybe one of the few moments that really spoke to me, the actor that played Timo Cruz and Coach Carter, again, whose name in this movie I can't remember. Rick Gonzalez plays Rudy Bonilla. Rudy, that's it, yes. So Rudy is the primary... Not Rudy! (sighs) Rudy! At least there was no slow clap moments in this. Rudy! They almost did it, but not quite. (laughs) But the lineup with your turn now, coach, your turn now, coach, I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. a little bit of cheese. When he gets lit up early in the season, he's on the mound, he's just getting pounded, and he gets pulled, and it's like, all right, we're bringing in a reliever, and it's the first baseman that walks to the mound, and Rudy walks to the first base and takes over there. I'm like, that's kind of cute, because that shows how small the roster is that they're all tagging in and out. It's almost like watching our softball team in action. You, go here now. You, go here. We have more players than they did. That is true, yeah. I read they only had 10 players on the team, and I think that's supposed to be accurate to the actual team. The key moment in the whole movie, I guess, as far as his relationship with the players, because he does throw the heat in the batting practice, and that does inspire them a little bit. No, but I think that comes later, though. But he does give them the looking for something more speech. Yes. It's not one of the great speeches in sports movie history, but it seems to make these players go from being disinterested (laughs) and pretty bad to world beaters. They win that game 3-2. to against a better team. They win the district championship in that moment. 
And it almost seems like that could have been the end of a movie. We've seen that kind of thing done in so many other films. Yes. But you're right. I don't really care so much about that early part of the movie when coaching the kids. It's okay. And the it's your turn coach thing that's written so many times and said so many times. Fine. But it felt like that could have been maybe condensed and then you get him yes. on his journey to become a Tampa Bay Devil Ray or wherever he's going to go in the first place. Then you get the whole thing where Jim takes his kids to a nearby tryout, which Laurie doesn't know about. He's changing diapers and waiting for his turn to pitch. Thinks he's not going to get a chance to. Again, I'm not going to pitch today. Morris, you're up. I'm changing my kid's diaper. Uh." But, of course, the running theme of him digging in and then throwing, I think, 98. Then he throws 98 in the pouring rain. I referenced in the intro that he's digging into this deep mud pit and still throwing 98, which does seem a little illogical because of the footing and getting a proper grip and all that kind of thing. The rain would knock the ball down. It might be 94, 95. Although I do like the sequence where he throws in front of a speed gun on the highway and you see the 78, uh, I guess I'm not so good after all. Again, harump, I'm not so good. And as he walks past it to go get the ball, flicker, 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 98. Because he'd been throwing, what was it, more like 96. Now he's got two more miles an hour in his fastball. Oh, yeah, by the way, we didn't talk about the drinks. We've had some technical problems. I hope we didn't have any kind of incongruous moments here. But Chris has opened up the second thing. That's the Zevia, Zevia? That's my Zevia soda. I'm two-fisting it. The Dr. Pepper still being healthy. And I have got some CC and diet, of course, as always. I was inspired by Jim Morris. I'm trying to make a late run of professional <laughs> softball at the age of 41. Not that much older than he was at that point. Although Quaid himself was late 40s in this movie. He was getting pretty close to 50, although he still looked really good. We talked about it two weeks ago on Breaking Away when he was a lot younger. The washboard abs, flawless physique, especially for the late 70s. Nobody looked like that back then, really, but he sure did. He was in Any Given Sunday. We did the Express. We did Breaking Away. And Quaid was also in six other sports films. Well, we're going to get a lot of Quaid down the line, aren't Not we? for a while, probably. But everybody's All-American. Okay, reputable enough title from the 80s. But also, I just saw this a few months ago, American Underdog. The story of Kurt Warner. Oh, yeah. He's the coach there. I think he's Dick Vermeil. But we've seen a lot of him this year, so that's enough of the summer <laughs> <Your> of Quaid. <laughs> well, we can't have him overtake Costner at any point. Costner's got to be king of the hill for this podcast, so we're going to have to make sure we hold him back until we cover a few more Costner <laughs> movies. But the tryout sequence to me was one of my favorite in this movie. He drives like 100 miles out of town after his wife goes to work because he doesn't want to admit to her that he's trying to make a run at the bigs again. Partly because he has a job offer. Yeah, that's something that never really gets fully resolved. kids, though. And also, the nutshell I wrote for this movie about halfway through the film was something like, I forget, I didn't keep it in my notes, but much like Costner in Field of Dreams, throws it all away for a pipe dream. Which yeah. is what movies do all the time, but it seems like he's pretty happy. Well, maybe not as happy as Costner was in Field of Dreams. But he's got a pretty good life. He's got the three kids. He's got a pretty good great point. wife. He's a school teacher in a small place. He seems to get along with everybody. Not a bad life at all. Reminds me of a simple plan. Bill Paxton, the voiceover. Yeah. I was a happy man. Seems like this guy is too until, hmm, maybe I can pitch, but what if I can't pitch? You should try, but what if I shouldn't try? Yeah, that's a good point. And part of the problem for me with these movies that are based in reality is that I can't help but think how much of this is reality and how much of it is Hollywood glossing over or building up certain elements for either dramatic tension or not make things look too bad. And it would almost make a little bit more sense if his life had some rough patches in it that we weren't given in this movie. You did mention the job offer where he's being given the cream of the Texas high school coaching crop by, what was it, Fort Myers or something, or Fort Worth, I think? Fort Worth, it must be. Must be Fort Worth, yeah. That's briefly a potential moment of conflict with the high school team when one of them asks, well, what about next year, coach? 
Well, let's just worry about this year for now, and then it's never mentioned again. We talked about Costner. Well, McFarland, which we covered earlier this year, similar kind of thing. He has a job offer from a bigger place, yeah. and they're threatened by the fact, what if he leaves us? As I recall, it was somewhat resolved, at least, or at least it was talked about and considered in a way it never really was in this movie. Both real stories, too. Yeah. Real, R-E-E-L, versus real, R-E-A-L, mm-hmm. like which is which. To finish that thought about the tryout that he goes to, a few things that I loved and I didn't know, again, is this like a real element of what he did in reality or is this a choice that the film make? I kind of hope it was a choice because it made me laugh. The first is that he brought all the kids because he had to and he's changing the baby's diaper and he basically just like, oh, look after your sister and pulls the shade down over the stroller and runs <laughs> out. <laughs> You'll be fine, kid. And he runs out to the mound. The contrast between what he's doing all day versus all the college age kids who are interested in running and throwing and showing off and playing baseball versus Dennis Quaid who's looking after his kids right Mm -hmm. that was a nice little contrast and that's the kind of thing I wish we had more of in the movie is the clash of culture almost between a guy who's 38 with a family versus all these 19 20 21 year old athletes who are just laser focused on the bigs and then he gets out on the mound and you realize okay well this guy showed up for this tryout wearing jeans Mm -hmm. He's asked, do you want to stretch or warm up? He's like, nah, I'm good. Why wouldn't you just say yes? Throw (laughs) a few warm-up pitches. Especially for a guy that I swear at least half a dozen times, a point of contention and argument was his injuries. His arm might blow up. Yeah. Injuries stopped me before. If it hurts, I'll stop. And you even see the scar, although it was at the front of the shoulder, so it was like a torn pec repair or something. I didn't really get that. Okay. Earlier in the movie, you get a shot of him with his shirt off, and there's a very distinct scar right down the front of his shoulder. If you blew up your shoulder as a pitcher, you would think it would be on the back, the rotator cuff area or something. Okay. Anyway, the point is that he's had a lot of arm injuries. Do you want to warm up? Nope. <laughs> oh, all right. 96. Yeah, 96 right out of the gate. <laughs> or 98, I guess. You ever watch a big leaguer warm up? They start soft tossing five minutes before they're going into a game. Then they ramp up, they ramp up, they ramp up. They probably throw 15, 20, 25 warm up pitches before you get put into a game. One of the big things this movie does not get right, because the depiction of the sport is pretty good in general. Yeah. But Quaid and his stunt double, it's mixed pretty well. Maybe the editor deserves a medal. Quaid, of course, is a good athlete. We've seen him in a lot of sports movies. But it seems like he's a pretty good pitcher, believable enough, especially playing somebody who's 38. But one thing they didn't get very right, I didn't think, when you watch a real baseball game and you hear somebody in the bullpen warming up, meaning they actually have the audio of him warming up, it has this loud pop sound when the ball hits the glove. And they didn't really capture that in this film, even though otherwise the depiction is pretty accurate. And this is a guy throwing 98. So it should really sound like that. Now, I mocked the whole 98 yawn thing earlier because (laughs) nowadays that's not that big a deal. In the late 90s, that would have been a big deal. So he really should have had that sizzle pop sound zing pop especially since a focal point of the movie is this is something that is touched on at least a little bit and again one of those elements that i wish they had given more room to breathe is as an older guy he could be seen as a publicity stunt he's confronted about that the movie portrays that sequence as well yeah he's being interviewed why because the other player brooks is doing better than him. What are they talking to him for? Because yeah, it's a story. I went three for four, or I went four for five last night where they're talking to him. Brooks, Dennis Quaid, and another player, they're at the bar and they're having drinks, and they basically tell him that a lot of the other players think he's taking up a spot or something, mm-hmm. right? Because he's a publicity stud. So that could be very easily the way people view you in that light, right? Except, hey, I can throw 98. We're shown against the high school team how 98 blows those hitters away. 
We're shown the way the scouts react to 98 in the tryouts. And then we're shown, in the minors at least, how overpowering, when he's not missing his spots, that 98 is and how impressive the it is. The real Morris, by the way, his run numbers, pretty wild. Yeah, that makes sense. Part of why his numbers weren't that awesome in the few games he pitched, he walked a lot of guys. That's not always the worst thing in the world if you've got strikeout stuff. But the point is, especially since we hear earlier, well, I used to throw 86, 87. And, oh, you're supposed to slow down with age. How do you get 98? I don't know. What I'm trying to get at here is the sound design of the pitch coming in and hitting the mitt is important. They get the sizzle of the ball flying, that little that you were doing earlier. Zing! (laughs) But the snapping of the glove is a very distinct sound, and they don't quite get it. I think it was Joe, the high school team catcher, even says... Joel, yeah. Joel. You watch him catch the ball, and he's kind of like, ooh, that one had some... Got ice my hand every time. Exactly. It's a detail, but I think it's an important detail. I do incidentally agree with you. Generally speaking, this movie does a pretty darn good job of portraying the sport. So this is a little bit nitpicky, but it did slightly detract from the one element for me anyway. One of the best things about Quaid in this whole film, though, is one of the few times he's allowed to have fun. And this is an actor who can be a lot of fun, too. He was a little dour in Breaking Away, but he was fairly new to acting at that point. And he was definitely dour in Any Given Sunday. But then he also played Jerry Lee Lewis, who is a really up kind of guy, Mm -hmm. which was about 13, 14 years before this film. One of the more Jerry Lee Lewis moments in this movie would be when he says to Brooks, and apparently it's a cut scene where it said earlier that we get to play baseball is what somebody said to him all the time. That's the privilege. We get to play baseball. Well, he comes up to Brooks after he watches the Little Leaguers and he's re-inspired. Hey, Brooks, you know what? We get to play baseball today. And that's one of the few times in the whole movie where this guy, who has a pretty good life, and I think he knows it, seems like he's happy and inspired and enjoying himself. I don't know really why he was directed. We haven't said his name yet. John Lee Hancock, who I think is a pretty solid director. John Hancock? John Lee Hancock. The Lee is probably important. Just his second movie. He also did The Blind Side, that blockbuster that Mm -hmm. Sandra Bullock won an Oscar for. And he also did Saving Mr. Banks. He also did biopics about Davy Crockett because he did The Alamo. Walt Disney, because that's saving Mr. Banks. You got one of the biggest entertainers of all time. Ray Kroc and the McDonald's Brothers in The Founder, a movie I like a lot. That's a really good movie on Netflix. If you haven't seen The Founder, Michael Keaton's in that. Watch it. Good movie. And then he also did The Highwaymen with Costner, and that's about the guy who got Bonnie and Clyde. So you've got all these biopics this guy's made. He's a pretty solid director and does a pretty good job in general, but it is a weird way to coach, or not coach, (laughs) interesting choice of words, to direct Dennis Quaid to be dour, 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 dour. We get to play baseball, awesome! And then he's right back to being dour again. (laughs) Was that scene before or after he tried to quit the AAA team? Must have been after. I think that's the whole point, right? Because he sees the little kids playing, makes eye contact with a kid and realizes, that was me a long time ago, back when I loved the game. That's right. I'm back to being re-energized. But then he's also stressed out again because, what if I don't succeed, Laurie? You're going to get called up to the big leagues. That's the win. Everything we talked about that didn't quite work for us in this movie, for me, feels like a lot of it could be resolved if they really did do what you said earlier, condense all the high school team stuff down into 15 minutes instead of... 30 at the most. Yeah, yeah, instead of the 45 to 50 minutes it is in this movie. And then give that extra 20 to 30 minutes to things like building some of that backstory I talked about earlier with the minor league stuff, because maybe then it explains to us a little bit better why he's got this apprehension about pursuing baseball again, if we understood better the pain he went through, maybe. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the actress's name, Rachel something. Rachel Griffiths. Who's great. I remember her from her She's really good. She was great in this time frame, because she was in that show, that's true, but she was also in Blow. That's right, yeah. As Johnny Depp's mother. 
little over the top, but a pretty strong performer. She was doing a lot of good work back in this time frame. She's also a pretty good-looking woman, too. She and Quaid are a pretty attractive couple. Yeah, attractive but couple. it's a Disney movie, so you talk about the scoring factor. It's Disney, so nope, no yeah. score. Even though those two look good together, you can see why they'd have three kids together. Very attractive <laughs> couple. And she's also Australian. Would you even know that? Didn't oh. seem like it, right? So she covers the accent pretty well. And I mentioned before Saving Mr. Banks for John Lee Hancock. Well, she's in that as well. So she worked with him again later oh, so on. She was a known But yeah, she is a pretty good character. But she's often playing Annie in Field of Dreams. Yes. Then again, not Annie because Annie's not even really pressuring Ray, except she's telling him, look, here's the reality, Ray. Go find Terrence Mann. Do what you got to do to fix this midlife crisis you're having. But we are having these problems back on this farm. Lori's saying, live your dream, but we are having some issues. Oh, i got to get back there and fix those. No, I'm just telling you yeah. there are issues, but play baseball. Get this out of your system. And then, hey, maybe we'll make some money as well, which obviously he does. Yeah. In a theoretical sense, especially now at our respective ages, I think you can put yourself in the shoes of a guy who's 38 and pursuing a dream like this. Especially when you've got three kids and you've got a wife and you've got all the standard day-to-day pressures that go on at home and you're not there, right? You're separated from it all. And I know there's plenty of players that have that, but usually by the time you're a big league player and you have the family, you have the wife and all that, you're established. You've been playing in the bigs. We've been playing professional ball for a long time. You're used to that routine. You either have a nest egg or at the very least, like I said, you're used to this kind of lifestyle. In the case of Dennis Quaid, he spent his entire adult life in normal setting. Coming home every single day. Yeah, so that separation from family stuff, you get it. But I would have liked to have seen the relationship stuff between Dennis Quaid and Laurie and his kids in particular, because we get a lot of Hunter in this movie. Mm-hmm. We don't get a ton of the other kids, but give me a little bit more of that Dennis Quaid at home, Dennis Quaid as the father figure, as the husband. And then later on, when he's on the verge of achieving his dream after all of his hemming and hawing, and then he says, nah, you know what? There's only a few weeks left in the season. I might, yeah, well. I might get called up anytime now because they're going to expand the rosters in September, but nah, I'm going to quit. <laughs> I can put my mind in the place where it has to be to understand why he would do that, but I don't feel like the movie really gave us a lot of good reasons to understand mm. it, you know? Yeah. Angus T. Jones does play Hunter, by the way. Only made five movies, but he is coasting on his two and a half men money because he is... Here's his name. Life. Whatever his name is in that movie. He's the half man. Yeah, the king. half man. <laughs> he's, the, he's the half man. <laughs> and two and a half men. We've covered, by the way, his co-star in that many times, Charlie Sheen. He was in Eight Men Out. He was in Major League. I watched Major League again recently, by the way. Same night I watched Bull Durham. Still love both those movies. The writer of this film for John Lee Hancock was Mike Rich, who also wrote Secretariat, which we covered not that long ago, and Finding Forrester, which has basketball in it. So this guy knows his sports stuff. The composer Carter Burwell worked with the Coens so often, but also did compose music for The Blind Side, which Hancock directed about five years after, no, seven years after this movie. This is one of those movies where the music... Don't remember it at all. Don't remember at all. <laughs> Not even a little bit. Contrary to the last movie we did, Breaking Away, where the goofy use of the Italian mm-hmm. classical music stood out. Got nominated for an Oscar, that music did. Yeah. Because the adaptation of that famous, or those famous tunes. And then John Schwartzman, who is Talia Shire's son... He shot Seabiscuit, which is also a beautiful-looking movie, and this movie is pretty good-looking. And I said before the introduction, you're sun-dappled. This movie is very sun-dappled. <laughs> and apparently the poster shot is not Dennis Quaid. It's his stunt double. I guess the movie looked fine. So much of this movie, because of that story arc with the kids, takes place in, like, a dust bowl, essentially, mm-hmm. right? So you've got that westerny feel to at least the first half of the movie. Yeah. The latter half is in baseball stadiums and stuff like that, so... I guess it looked fine. I thought it looked pretty good. 
there were a few moments for sure that stood out, like the first pitch he throws as a pro in Texas. I thought that moment was effective. He's in the bullpen. I don't think he was warming up yet, but he was in the bullpen and his family comes in. There's reaching because you know he's been separated them for months and all that. That was a nice moment and it paid off well. I really liked that tryout scene with the kids. I'm probably forgetting about one other scene that I thought was really effective. A lot of this movie just struck me as that was inoffensive. That ate some time. But But pretty stock. We've seen it before. Pretty stock. And so when you described the critics' ratings and the Rotten Tomatoes numbers and the overall scores that viewers would get this movie, I get why it would get 7 out of 10 from viewers because if you're... Uh, family with some younger kids and you just want to watch an inoffensive movie that's fine for everybody and might be enjoyable for a broad swath of the audience, this pretty much fits the bill. You know what's funny too is that this is before some of the better Disney movies that we've covered. Miracle was two years later. Mm-hmm. Glory Road was two years after that. Glory Invincible was the same year. Better. So Invincible and Glory Road are both 2006. And we've covered other Disney movies and we talked about how they maybe didn't get the best promotional budget because those three, especially Miracle and even Glory Road, are a lot better than this. I think this movie's solid, but those movies I think are excellent, especially Miracle. And they didn't succeed, as I recall, even as much as this did. There is a, I don't want to say it's a fatal flaw because it's not like I dislike this movie, but there's a really substantial flaw in the structure of the movie to me. It feels like two movies rammed together. Mm. I wish they'd just chosen a story arc and go with it. And obviously that story arc should be Path to the Majors. But that doesn't make this a bad movie. I like Dennis Quaid generally. I like him in this movie. Like you said, he's dour, and that's a weird choice. But okay, we've already talked about Laurie. I think she's a great actress, and she's not given a ton to do, but she's good too. And I think all the performances generally are pretty good. And by the end of it all, you feel reasonably good about the story. So it's fine. It's not as good as the later movies, like you said. But for me, it's like 6 out of 10. I don't know if I would watch it again at least not for the foreseeable future, but if somebody's like, hey, Chris, I want to watch this movie. You want to watch it with me? I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever. It's on Disney+, Plus, so you can see it anytime you want to. That's how we both watched it. I would give it a 7, which is pretty much what I gave it all those years ago. I saw it the first time. It's very well-trodden territory, but Hancock treads it well. I guess that's a good way to put it, mm-hmm. yeah. We've talked about some of the important elements that have really frustrated us about past movies, notably a movie that leans heavily on a sport but clearly doesn't understand that sport. Mm-hmm. We've gotten really angry about that in certain movies in the past. But this one gets it. This one gets it, and that is a key element. For all of my frustrations with the structure of the movie, it gets the sport, and the sport is so integral to it. I'll forgive some of the other flaws. A lot of sports action. And my biggest complaint is just that they don't really get the sound right in the bullpen. A pretty minor problem. Yeah, I think that speaks volumes about how well they do get the sport. If that's the biggest thing we can come up with to Greg... Then we're reaching. One moment that made me realize, damn, Chris, you are... A grumpy old man at this point, like there's any doubt at this point in the podcast, but (laughs) they're getting the montage of the kids going on their winning streak and scoring all the runs, and they're all running home and jumping straight on home plate. Mm -hmm. Somebody is just asking for a torn Achilles. In cleats, you jump on that hard plate. Kendrick Morales broke his leg. You slip, you tear a tendon, you shatter a bone. Come on, kids. Just Mm -hmm. step on it lightly with one foot. Oh, no, no. (laughs) I'm so empty of joy, Ryan. (laughs) Well, Chris is going to take a last step of his pop or his Zevia, at least. Uh, my <sighs> beverage is long gone, and we've had a separate session of recording. So, like I said, I hope we're, we still miss, going, right? we're still going. Hope we didn't lose too much when we had to stop it because we had problems with this before, and I thought it was fixed. And then I think the mic cable fell out or something. I don't know. My laptop is being weird. Anyway, I thought the rookie was very solid. Chris thought it was a little slightly under solid, but not a bad time at the movies. And that is it for the summer of Quaid, I think. <laughs> we'll do him again, but not for a while. But we've got a lot more chances to do Dennis Quaid. 
So enjoy the second half of the Major League Baseball season, and we hope you enjoyed the All-Star game a few days ago. I never miss it, even when the game is dull as a brick. I get a kick out of seeing all those great players playing on the same field on the same night. All right, in two weeks, we'll cover a sport we've never actually covered before. Arm wrestling. But no, it won't be the obvious choice, which would be over the top, Chris. Chris discovered a little something called Golden Arm. I don't recognize almost any of the names listed in the cast, so this could be an adventure. Golden Arm. It looks to be woman-made, director, writer, the actresses. So we'll get a woman-made movie. That's cool, but... Arm wrestling, we'll see. Could be terrible. If there's one thing two macho men like us must know all about, it's arm wrestling, right? <laughs> we'll be able to critique the depiction of the sport, all the minute details of technique. I'm sure we'll nail it. That and over the top might be the only two in the genre as well. Yeah. So we're on Twitter. I'm at moviefiend51. Chris is at scoring at movies. The email address, of course, is scoring at the movies at gmail.com, where you can find all of our episodes, all 107 of them now. 108 of them, I should say. In total, 108. Wherever you found this podcast, we're everywhere online. Look for us. Subscribe as well, please, and rate us and review us. Tell us if you think we're good or bad. And join the editor from Hustle in saying, you got this fact right, you got that fact wrong. And we appreciate that, Mr. Hustle Editor. You take her easy, Jimmy. Although your father and I need to talk to you. <laughs> Running theme early on. Because <laughs> we're going to move. You're not going to play baseball until you're 38 years old, and you're barely going to enjoy it even when you do.